Hi, and welcome to Crash Course Catholicism, a podcast about Catholic teaching and why it makes sense. I'm your host, Caitlin West. Welcome to episode 18 of Crash Course Catholicism. Now, as you know, the next series of episodes is going to be on the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church. So we're going to kick off in this next few episodes talking about the three sacraments of initiation. So that's baptism, confirmation, and communion. Now, these are the three sacraments that kind of provide the foundation for our Christian life. So that's why we call them the sacraments of initiation. So through baptism, we're reborn and we're made children of God. And then confirmation strengthens and confirms us in our faith. And then the Eucharist nourishes us on our journey to heaven. And all three of these sacraments combined give us those kind of fundamental graces that make our mission possible. But today we're just going to talk about the first of these three sacraments. So we're going to talk about baptism. Now, on the one hand, Baptism is one of those things that is kind of fairly non-controversial, right? Like most Christian churches have some form of baptism. But on the other hand, some Christians just see baptism as a kind of symbolic gesture, right? As a way of publicly saying, yep, okay, I'm a Christian and I believe in Jesus. But they don't actually see it as having any kind of power to save us. And this is where the Catholic Church differs from those denominations, because as Catholics, we see baptism not just as something symbolic, but as a sacrament through which we are saved. Now, I can understand why some Protestants find this a difficult idea to swallow. And this is the way that Peter Kreeft puts it. He says, Many Protestants argue that baptism cannot save us because it's Christ's death on the cross that has already saved us. So to them, it's almost like we're saying that baptism replaces the cross or that Christ's death was insufficient. Okay, this is a misunderstanding of what the sacraments are. We talked about this in the last episode, that the sacraments are a channel of God's grace. They don't replace what Christ did on the cross. They channel those graces so that we can receive them. So Peter Craft continues. He says, yes, Christ's death does save us, but it is communicated to us through baptism. Okay, so those graces obtained for us on the cross by Christ are then applied to us in baptism. So we can think of it kind of like, you know, in Harry Potter, when he first finds out that he's a wizard and Hagrid takes him to Gringotts Bank and shows him his parents' vault. And the vault is just like full of money, right? And Harry realizes that he's basically rich. He's like set for life. Now, that's fantastic. All of that wealth that his parents have obtained for him, that's great, but it isn't going to just magically find its way into his pockets, right? If he wants to use it, he has to go and make a withdrawal. So it's the same for us, right? Like Christ obtained this infinite grace of salvation for us through the cross. And then it's through the sacrament of baptism that we access that grace and apply it to ourselves. Now, We might hear that and sort of think, oh, you know, like it just sounds really clinical, right? Like saying that we need to specifically pour water on someone and say these specific words, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. And if we don't do that, then we can't be saved. You know, that seems really restrictive. Okay, 
couple of points to make here. The first is that God is not being restrictive. He's being merciful. Okay, God is so good. He knows that as human beings, we need tangible signs of his grace because we can't always feel it working in us. You know, with modern day banking, the way it works is that like, I actually never really see my money. I just know that I have money in the bank, but I never actually see it. So if someone transfers money to my bank account, I don't actually see that happen. And that's why the bank will send me a written statement, something that's tangible and that says, okay, this amount of money was put into your account. So then I can be like, okay, sweet. I know it's there. I can relax. So this is an act of great love on God's part. He's saying, you know, I love you. I don't ever want you to worry about whether or not you've been saved. I want you to be sure. If you have done these specific things, you can be at peace. You can know for sure that you've received the grace of baptism. It's the same with all sacraments, right? Every single sacrament has what we call matter and form. Okay, so matter refers to like literally the material stuff that we need for the sacrament. So in the case of baptism, that's water. And then form refers to literally the form that the sacrament takes, the words and the gestures that we use. So in baptism, the form is the pouring of water or the immersion in water. And then the words, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And these things are necessary. Otherwise, the sacrament is not valid. Okay, so we can't like pour a cup of milk on someone's head and say, I baptize you in the name of Buzz Lightyear, okay, and then be like, well, you've been baptized. No, okay, obviously that would not work. In the same way that if you're doing a bank transfer, you can't just write down a random account number and hope that your money ends up in the right place, okay? Those tangible signs matter. And this is something that we talked about a lot in the last episode. So if you want to think more about it, you might revisit that episode. Now, why do we use those specific tangible signs for baptism? Why do we use water and those particular words? Well, water appears throughout the Old Testament as a symbol of cleansing and renewal. So, for instance, in Genesis, we see that the Holy Spirit breathes on the waters. And this is like the beginning of life. And then we have, you know, things like Noah's Ark and the crossing of the Red Sea, right up until John baptizing with water, which signifies repentance and renewal. So this is a symbol that comes up over and over again in the Old Testament. And then John tells his disciples that someone is coming who is going to baptize with water and the Spirit. So someone is going to take this sign of water and he is going to sacramentalize it. Yeah, he's going to turn it into something so much more. And he points to Christ as being that person. And then when Jesus is on the cross and his side is pierced, water and blood pour from the wound. And the church has always seen this as a symbol of baptism and the Eucharist. So that's why we use water in baptism. And then the reason why we use those specific words is quite simply because Christ told us to. Okay, So before his ascension into heaven, Jesus told his disciples to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So that's exactly what the disciples did and what Christians have done ever since. Okay, now you might still be thinking, look, I understand why the external signs are important. I understand their meaning and why we use them. But 
this still sounds a bit restrictive. Like, what if you're someone who doesn't have access to water? Or what if you've never heard of baptism because you live in the middle of the Amazon? You know, are you saying that those people can't be saved because they're not receiving baptism? Okay. (laughs) In order to answer that objection, we need to balance two very important ideas. The first is this. In the Gospel of John, Christ tells Nicodemus, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. So basically he's saying that we need baptism to get into heaven. Okay, so that's one thing. But the second thing we need to remember is this. This is how the catechism puts it in point 1257. It says, God has bound salvation to the sacrament of baptism but he himself is not bound by his sacraments. In other words, God is God, right? Like he can do whatever he wants. And here we return to the idea that sacraments are a channel of God's grace. They're not the source of that grace. The source of grace is Christ's death on the cross. So the church has always, since the early church fathers, always maintained that if through no fault of your own, you somehow cannot access the sacrament of baptism, it may still be possible for you to access the grace of baptism that Christ obtained on the cross through another kind of channel. Okay, so there are two situations in which the church says that someone might experience the grace of baptism without access to the sacrament. One we call baptism of blood and the other baptism of desire. So baptism of blood refers to martyrdom, when someone dies for God. And this used to happen a lot in the early Christian church, when you had people who had converted, like they believed in Jesus, and they were in the process of preparing for baptism, but they were killed for their faith before they could actually receive the sacrament. And many of the early church fathers, like Tertullian and St. Cyprian and St. Augustine, they talk about how martyrdom is like being washed with blood rather than with water. And Christ himself in Matthew chapter 10 says, those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Okay, so the church has always trusted that anyone who's martyred for Christ will obtain the grace of the sacrament of baptism. And then we have what we call the baptism of desire. So when someone wants to be baptized, but there's some kind of obstacle in the way. So, for instance, perhaps you live somewhere where there are no other Christians and you find a Bible and you read it and you want to become a Christian, but there's no one to baptize you. Or maybe, you know, you're a child and your family won't let you get baptized. So in situations like that, the desire is there, but there's something external that is stopping you from getting baptized. Now, St. Thomas Aquinas talks about how a person can also have what he calls an implicit desire for baptism. So what this means is that the person themselves isn't even explicitly aware that they desire baptism. So, for instance, you know, maybe this is someone who has just never encountered Jesus or the gospel or the church, but in their heart, they're following the natural law and they're seeking truth and they're trying to live a good life. Or it could be that, you know, they have technically heard of Jesus, but maybe they received a really skewed or inaccurate picture of him. 
So some people are raised by parents who tell them like, oh, all Christians are these hypocritical, bigoted, terrible people, you know, or maybe they say Jesus was just this hippie guy and he said some nice things, but, you know, we don't really take him seriously. So someone like that might grow up thinking, okay, well, I don't want any part of that. I don't want to be a Christian. But in their heart, they're genuinely seeking the truth and they're seeking goodness and they're actually living a Christian life. So in a situation like that, the only impediment to them getting baptized is their lack of knowledge of Christ. And if they really knew him, then of course they would get baptized. So this can be an instance of what we call a baptism of desire. Now, (laughs) the fact that people can receive a baptism of desire, does this mean that we get to kind of throw our hands in the air and go, oh, well, you know, I'm sure my non-Christian friends will be fine. You know, they're all living good lives. They're trying to be good people. I'm sure they've received the baptism of desire. No, definitely not. That would be presumptuous. We can't know what is going on in someone's soul. Wherever possible, we need to try to bring people to the sacrament of baptism. And if someone can be baptized and wants to be baptized, they should be baptized. But we also shouldn't completely panic and think that all of our non-Christian friends are definitely going to hell. Again, we don't know what's going on in someone's soul. Now, In case you needed any more evidence that the church is not being legalistic or like exclusive when it comes to baptism, it's worth noting that the church does everything that she can to make baptism as easy as possible for people to access. So Aquinas talks about how, you know, this is one of the reasons why we use water in the sacrament, because most people, it's kind of universal, most people have access to at least a little bit of it. And he says that, you know, it doesn't even have to be clean water. You know, it can be dirty water from a puddle, so long as it's water. And then the other thing that the church tells us is that in times of necessity, absolutely anyone can administer the sacrament of baptism. So usually, you know, a priest will baptize, and sometimes it'll be a deacon. But if you're in an emergency situation, anyone can do it. So we actually had a family friend who, when she was born, she wasn't breathing and they thought that she died. So her dad grabbed her and held her under a tap and then turned the tap on and said, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the water actually revived her and she started screaming her head off and they were like, oh, gosh, she's alive. Okay, that was a valid baptism. That's how she got baptized. Or like, you know, if you're on a plane that's about to crash, you could turn to the person next to you with your water bottle and say, you know, would you like me to baptize you? That would be valid. So the church does everything that she can to make sure that as many people who, you know, whoever wants to be baptized can be baptized. Okay, now let's talk about some of the effects of baptism. So we've said that through baptism, we are saved. Well, what does that mean? Like, that's a bit general. Okay, so let's get a bit more specific. What actually happens when we're baptized? Well, the catechism in point 1213 lists the effects of baptism. It says, Through baptism, we are freed from sin and reborn as children of God. We become members of Christ, are incorporated into the church, and are made sharers in her mission. Okay, so there are a few things in there, so let's break them down. So the first thing, we are freed from sin and reborn as children of God. So later on in point 1263, the catechism also says, by baptism, All sins are forgiven, original sin and all personal sins, as well as all punishment for sin. 
So in other words, when we're baptized, we are washed completely clean. Every trace of sin is gone from our souls. We are spick and span. We're like a newly washed car, not a speck of dust on us. Okay. Baptism kind of floods our souls with the divine life of God. And that flood washes away all traces of sin. Now, we might hear that and sort of think, "Uh, okay, well, if I'm washed completely clean of sin in baptism, then how is it that I still commit sins even after I've been baptized? Okay, good point. It's important to distinguish here. Baptism washes away all traces of sin from our souls, but it doesn't change our human nature. In the same way that a car wash will clean your car, but it won't turn your car into a Mercedes. So as human beings, we have this natural tendency to, you know, want to give in to our physical and emotional desires. And we call that concupiscence. Okay. We're swayed by our instincts and our desires. We also naturally experience suffering and we naturally grow old and die. And if you remember, you know, way back in early episodes when we were talking about Adam and Eve and original sin, we said that before the fall, Adam and Eve were given these preternatural gifts by God. Okay, so these extra gifts that exceeded what they were naturally humanly capable of. So Adam and Eve had total control over their instincts and desires. They did not suffer or die, and they had this infused knowledge of God. Now, Adam and Eve threw those gifts in the garbage. They rejected those gifts. And the consequence of that is that we don't inherit them. So even though baptism restores to us this one incredible supernatural gift of the divine life of God, we still remain in our natural fallen human state. So that's why we still suffer and we still commit sins. But that does not mean that we don't get any help from God. So when we're baptized, the Holy Spirit flows through our soul and infuses us with countless gifts and graces. So we receive the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. We receive the moral virtues of prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. And we receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So those are wisdom, understanding, counsel, fortitude, knowledge, piety, and fear of the Lord. So we'll talk a bit more about these gifts in the episode on confirmation. But basically, we receive a lot of help through baptism. God pours out his graces on us. Does this mean that when a person gets baptized, that they suddenly start like pinging off the walls and quoting the Bible and like doing good deeds left, right, and center because they're suddenly full of the Holy Spirit? No. I mean, I don't know about you. I've been to a few adult baptisms and, you know, externally, at least, people seem mostly pretty much the same after they've been baptized. So there are a couple of points to make here. The first is, and this is something that we know, right, that there isn't always a direct parallel between the action of grace in our souls and the feeling that we are full of grace, So many saints have commented on this, that sometimes when we're getting closer to God and we're growing in holiness, 
we might actually feel like God is quite distant from us. You know, we might feel flat and dry and a bit lonely and vice versa. Sometimes we feel amazing and on fire with the Holy Spirit, but that does not mean that we're actually living virtue. So I remember when I was a teenager and I would go on, you know, a retreat or I'd be praying and I would just feel like so close to God. And I remember thinking like, oh my gosh, I could pretty much die right now. Like I'm basically a saint. I just feel so holy. I feel so close to God. And I look back on myself back then and I'm like, oh my gosh, mate, you were a mess. (laughs) Like you were running around the city barefoot, smoking cigarettes and being a general menace. Like you were the furthest thing from a saint possible. But I felt so close to God. Okay. So we shouldn't expect that we're necessarily going to feel this overwhelming presence of the Holy Spirit in our souls in the way that we expect. I mean, we might, but we won't necessarily. The Holy Spirit is gentle and quiet. He doesn't usually announce himself with blazing trumpets when he's present. We will experience the action of the Holy Spirit in our souls in the way that we slowly and quietly and gently grow closer to God and grow more and more purified in our love for him. But one other thing that it might be worth noting here is that while God's grace is infinite and every single person is showered with the same graces in baptism, not everyone approaches baptism with the same degree of receptivity. So Thomas Aquinas talks about this, about how it is possible to approach baptism with a degree of what he refers to as insincerity. See, what he means by that is that our will is in some way or to some extent in conflict with baptism or with its effects. So, for example, say, you know, we're not completely sure that we want to get baptized. You know, maybe we we kind of do, but we're mainly doing it to please someone else. Or maybe, you know, there's a particular sin that we're attached to and we don't really want to be freed from it. Or, and this is a big one, maybe we just haven't been adequately prepared for baptism. Like we actually don't really fully understand or accept every aspect of the faith that we're being baptized into. And this is why it is so, so important that if someone is being baptized as an adult, they need to be well prepared for baptism. So that's why we have the RCIA, which is that rite of Christian initiation for adults. So it's a period of preparation before we're received into the church. And that period of preparation, if we make maximum use of it, it will help us to be as open to the grace of the sacrament as possible. Because, you know, whatever size vessel we bring to God, God will fill it. So we want to make sure that we approach baptism with a swimming pool for him to fill and not just a thimble, right? And that's also why it's really important that as Christians, we pray for catechumens, for people who are going through that period of preparation, because we want to help them to benefit as much as possible from the sacrament. And even after a person has been baptized, they can continue to grow, to become greater vessels for God's grace. So in point 1254, the catechism says, faith must grow after baptism. Preparation for baptism leads only to the threshold of new life. So baptism isn't the end. Baptism is the beginning of our life with Christ. And even after we've been baptized, we need to continue to grow in holiness and to be formed in our faith. Now, one of the other effects of baptism is that it incorporates us into the one holy church. 
So we've talked about this in previous episodes, right? That the church is that one mystical body of Christ. And through baptism, we become a member of it. And it's important to remember here that this can include non-Catholic Christians. Like any Christian who has received a valid baptism becomes part of the mystical body of Christ. Now, they may not be in full communion with the church, but as long as they're in a state of grace, they are part of that one mystical body. So that's why, you know, when we talk about like, oh, our Protestant brothers and sisters, that's not just a nice turn of phrase. It's like, no, seriously, all Christians, we're part of that one family. And that's why when a Protestant is received into the church, if they've already been validly baptized, they're not going to be re-baptized. Like we can't be re-baptized. They'll just receive confirmation and communion. Now, of course, again, when it comes to our non-Catholic Christian friends, we can't just throw our hands up and be like, oh, well, they're baptized, so they're completely fine. No, we want our friends to be in full communion with the church. We want them to experience the joy and the grace of the sacraments. And we want them to become saints, right? Not just to be saved. But we should also respect that even if they don't have everything, they've still got a lot. And in fact, you know, The very fact that non-Catholic Christians are part of that one body of Christ, that should encourage us to try to seek unity in the church, right? We want to bring everyone into full communion with the church. Now, the final effect of baptism is that it marks us with what we call an indelible spiritual mark. So the Catechism in Point 1272 says that baptism seals the Christian with the indelible spiritual mark of his belonging to Christ. So it's like a stamp that says, I belong to Christ. And that is a really beautiful thing. Like that's not a mark of ownership, like branding a cow or something. That is a mark of love. So I love the way that Pope Francis talks about it. He says, reborn as children of God, that is what will be forever. No sin can erase that mark, even if sin prevents baptism from bearing the fruits of salvation. The baptismal mark will never disappear. So basically he's saying that even if we commit a mortal sin and we can't go to heaven, we will still be marked as children of God. And then Pope Francis goes on to ask a kind of rhetorical question. He says, well, what if someone becomes a criminal? One of those infamous ones who kills people, who commits injustices, won't the mark be gone? And then he responds, no, God never disowns his children. Do you understand? God never disowns his children. I just love that. I love that he repeats that. God will never disown us. So that indelible mark on our souls, that's like God saying, I'm yours forever. So it's like that line from one of Shakespeare's sonnets, love does not alter when it alteration finds, nor bends with the remover to remove. So in other words, even if you change, or even if you stop loving me or bend away from me, I will stay here. I'll always be here for you. And that can give us so much confidence and so much comfort in the fact that God will always be there for us. Now, if you've ever been to a baptism before, you might have noticed that a whole bunch of other stuff happens at the baptism. Like, it's not like you just walk in, say the words, pour the water, and then everyone goes home. No, a few other things happen. And the sort of specific things that happen at a baptism change according to, you know, where you are in time or in the world. But there are a few things that should always be there at a baptism. So the Catechism in point 1229 lists them. It says that the first is the proclamation of the word 
an acceptance of the gospel. So the priest will read from the gospels, okay, and he will end by saying the gospel of the Lord, and then we, the congregation, say praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So as a community, we express our faith that this is truly the word of God. Now, the second thing that needs to be present is a profession of faith. So the entire community, as well as the catechumen, or if it's a baby, their parents, will profess the creed and publicly affirm that, yes, this is the faith that I believe in and that I want to be baptized into. And then, of course, there's the actual baptism itself. Now, obviously, the only thing that is strictly necessary in order for the sacrament to be valid is the baptism itself, right? The water and the words. So in an emergency, that's all you need. But when it comes to, you know, an official public baptism, it's really important that we have those other elements because it reminds us that, you know, this isn't just a naming ceremony. You know, this isn't just something that we're going through the motions because grandma's Catholic. No, this person is being publicly received into the Catholic faith. So that needs to be proclaimed and affirmed publicly. Now, the other two crucial aspects that the catechism tells us complete this process of baptism and initiation into the church are confirmation and communion. So in the next episode, we're going to continue by looking at confirmation. Okay, cool. Well, that's all we have time for today. I can't wait to talk about confirmation with you in the next episode. Have a great fortnight and I will see you next time.